0: And let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. The first book in the New Testament, sort of the second half of the Bible, beginning a series on the Gospel of Matthew which I'm calling The King and His Kingdom. Matthew is about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew focuses especially on the fact that Jesus is the king. Of course, he says a number of other things about our Savior, but in particular, he focuses on the fact that Jesus is the promised king in the line of David who would bring the kingdom of God. And we're going to look this morning at the line of the king that we're given in the opening verses of the chapter, the genealogy of Jesus, and What Matthew is doing is he's basically showing his readers that Jesus' lineage checks out. That he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the son of David, so he's the king. And he is also the son of Abraham, so he's the offspring through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I very much look forward to getting into this gospel together with you. My hope is that we will all grow in our love for our king and our loyalty to our king and that we will learn more about his kingdom and of course all that he has done to bring us into it by his grace. So let's pause and pray for God's help and then we'll begin together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this book that we are about to begin together. That tells us about who you are and what you've done for sinners like us to save us from our sin and to bring us into the kingdom of God. We pray that you would open our eyes more to the wonder of your character and your grace. And in particular, this morning, may we be encouraged by the fact that you came to save sinners, that you came to save all kinds of sinners. And that no one is outside the reach of your grace. Help us now as we give our attention to your word together, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 17. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nahshon, and Nahshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born." who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Two main points this morning, you can see them in your sermon notes there, the Gospel of Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus. Under the first point, the Gospel of Matthew, we'll be thinking about some things that are useful to know in order to understand this book. And then under that second point, the genealogy of Jesus, we'll look at the first part of chapter one that I just read, the genealogy we find there, and what it tells us about Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And kids, let me give you the key words for kids. I did not include them in the bulletin this time. Let me give them to you. The key words for kids are the following. Constitution. It's a little long. It's the Constitution, like, like of our country. Diamond. Pastor. Grandfather. Thread. Like a piece of Thread and ground constitution diamond pastor grandfather thread and ground and no matter your age you can listen for those words as you listen to the sermon this morning so first the gospel of Matthew and we're going to think about who and then when and then why under this first main point so first who that is who wrote the gospel of Matthew Well, it was Matthew, Matthew the tax collector, one of the 12 disciples. And we know that not because he wrote his name at the top of the page or in the first verse like the Apostle Paul did in his letters, for example. We know it rather from early church history and from manuscript evidence. And the introduction to the book of Matthew in a good study Bible would give you the details about that. We're not gonna go over them this morning, but you can take a look at that on your own time if you like. The calling of Matthew is in chapter nine. If you'll turn there briefly to chapter nine, I'll read a few verses for us regarding the calling of Matthew the tax collector. Matthew chapter nine, verse nine. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. One of those sinners was Matthew. He was called by Jesus and he rose and followed Jesus. And one of the ways he followed Jesus was by writing this gospel. So, who wrote Matthew? Matthew wrote Matthew. But of course, someone else wrote Matthew through Matthew and that was God himself. There was a divine author working through the human author. And Matthew wrote from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit to use the language of 2 Peter 1. Matthew was one of those chosen men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to use the language of the kids' catechism. When Matthew wrote, what Matthew wrote was what God wrote through him, so that what we have before us in our Bibles is not just the words of a man, but the very words of God. And we should read them with that in mind. We should read them carefully and prayerfully. We should read them eagerly and humbly. We should read them devotionally and worshipfully, because they are the words of God. So who wrote Matthew? Matthew wrote Matthew, but ultimately God wrote Matthew through Matthew, and we should read Matthew with that in mind, remembering that it is the word of God. Our second question under this first main point is when When was Matthew written? Well, we're not given a date in the inspired text. But again, based on some evidence from early church history, we estimate that Matthew was written sometime in the late 50s or early 60s. Of course, not the 1950s or 60s. The actual 50s or 60s, as in the first century A.D. Some say that it was written after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., because of the fact that Jesus talks about the fall of Jerusalem in parts of chapter 24. And since he couldn't have known the future, so the argument goes, Matthew couldn't have written those things until after 70 AD. But of course, Jesus, being fully man and fully God, does know the future. In fact, he ordained the future from eternity past. He holds the future in his hand. So it's not a problem for the dating of Matthew that Jesus spoke about the fall of Jerusalem before it actually happened. And Matthew recorded his words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, again, sometime in the late 50s or early 60s. So we are reading a book that is about 1,960 years old, give or take, that's a pretty old book. Older than the Constitution, older than the Magna Carta, older than the writings of Augustine or Origen or Tertullian. The book of Matthew is old, it's ancient, and yet it's ever new, isn't it? It is living and active, it is sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Hebrews 4:12. It is breathed out by God and profitable for us, to teach us to reprove us, to correct us and to train us in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3:16. It is modern and relevant for our daily lives. It's more up to date than the most recent post on your Twitter feed. And that is because it is the word of the eternal God. So even though it was written long ago in the past, it speaks to us in the present. It is relevant and applicable to us in the present day. It is authoritative for our good over us. And that is because it is the word of the ever-present and all-authoritative God given to us to feed our souls and make us more like our Savior. Third question under this first main point, after who and when is why? Why did Matthew write Matthew? Well, he wrote it to convince his fellow Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. He wrote it to show them that Jesus is the promised king in the line of David and the offspring of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. He often quotes the Old Testament showing that Jesus fulfilled prophecy And again, he has a heart for his fellow ethnic Jews, his fellow ethnic Israelites, to embrace Jesus by faith as the Messiah. And for anyone here this morning who is an ethnic Jew, or family or friends of ours, or acquaintances we have who have Jewish ancestry, or are committed to Judaism, the Gospel of Matthew has special relevance and is worthy of thoughtful, careful consideration. But this book is, of course, not just for Jews, it's also for Gentiles, really it's for all people. Again, it's about the son of Abraham, the promised offspring of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed, as God promised in Genesis 12. Through whom men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, and language and people and nation can be saved from sin and have eternal life. So Matthew wrote Matthew primarily to convince his fellow Jews that Jesus is the Messiah and secondarily to show all people that Jesus is the savior of sinners, the savior of all who repent of sin and believe in him. Now let me say one more thing here and then we'll turn our attention to the genealogy of Jesus. You may have wondered this before, but why did God give us four gospels? Why did He give us four? Not one. Four books about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, I think He gave us four because the riches of Christ are unsearchable. Paul says that in Ephesians 3:8. Christ is a diamond. And the four gospels help us to see him from four different angles. Like when you go to see the Hope Diamond at the Smithsonian Museum in D.C., some of you may have done that, you can walk all the way around it and see it from different angles. It's the same diamond, but viewed from different perspectives, and it's much the same with the four gospels. It's the same Christ, but from four different, but complementary perspectives, J.C. Ryle wrote, four distinct gospels tell us the story of Christ's doing and dying. Four times over, we read the precious account of his works and words. How thankful we ought to be for this. To know Christ is life eternal. To believe in Christ is to have peace with God. To follow Christ is to be a true Christian. To be with Christ will be heaven itself. We can never hear too much about Jesus Christ. Well then, let's begin by looking at the genealogy of Jesus that we're given in the first part of chapter one. So this is our second main point now, the genealogy of Jesus. We'll consider four things here. The summary of the genealogy given in verse one, the structure of the genealogy, I'll say a few words about that, the selectivity of the selectivity of the genealogy, and finally the salvation focus of the genealogy. So first we have a summary of the genealogy in verse one. Look at verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The phrase the book of the genealogy could just be referring to the genealogy that follows of course or it could mean something like the record of the origins of Jesus Christ, in which case it refers to the first two chapters, the genealogy and birth and early years of Jesus. Or this phrase could mean something more like the record of the history of Jesus Christ, in which case it would be referring to the whole book. But regardless, Matthew's Gospel begins with a genealogy, and whereas we modern readers might start to glaze over a bit at the mention of a genealogy, Matthew's original readers, his fellow Jews, would have leaned forward in their chairs because genealogies were very important to Jews for a variety of reasons. Genealogies were not just a list of names. They said something. They communicated something in this particular genealogy, says something, it communicates something about who Jesus is and what he came to do. It is a genealogy of Jesus Christ. A quick word about the name Jesus Christ. Kids, you may already know, but Jesus is not his first name and Christ his last name, like Matt Purdy might be. Jesus is his name Christ is his title. Jesus is his name, meaning Yahweh saves, and Christ is his title, meaning Messiah, the promised Messiah. But at the same time, he is so often identified as the Christ, as the Messiah, that Christ sort of does function like his name. Kind of like Again, for me, my name is Matt. My title is pastor. But oftentimes, people call me Pastor Matt. So my my title and my name together. And it's much the same with Jesus Christ. Those things are so associated that they blend together, as it were. Jesus, the name Christ the title coming together as really the name Jesus Christ. The next two phrases would have been very powerful for Matthew's original readers. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is the son of David, that is the promised king in the line of David God promised David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Which most immediately referred to Solomon but ultimately referred to the Messiah. And Matthew is saying that Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is the promised king. He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse, prophesied in Isaiah 11.1. 1. He is the righteous branch, prophesied in Jeremiah 23.5. He is the root and descendant of David in Revelation 22.16 and so on. Isaiah 9.7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He's the son of David. He is also the son of Abraham. That is, again, the offspring of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed, as God promised in Genesis 12 and beyond. Paul says in Galatians chapter three, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. The Messiah is the offspring of Abraham and Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And the genealogy itself, of course, will show that. Which brings us to our second point here, the structure of the genealogy. The structure of the genealogy. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So, like a good sermon, there are three parts to the genealogy, Abraham to David, David to the deportation, that is the exile, and the deportation to the Christ. And you can see that threefold structure probably in the indentation in your Bible. The first paragraph, verse 2 down through first part of verse 6 is Abraham to David. The second paragraph, the second part of verse 6 down through verse 11 is David to the deportation. And the third paragraph, verses 12 through 16 is the deportation to the Christ. The note in my study Bible at the bottom says, perhaps for ease of memorization or perhaps for literary or symbolic symmetry, Matthew structures the genealogy to count 14 generations from each major section. We might wonder why. The note goes on to say, according to the Jewish practice of gematria, the giving of a numeric value to the consonants in a word... David's name would add to 14. D plus V plus D, or four plus six plus four equals 14. And David is the 14th name on the list. So you can ponder that. But even the structure of the genealogy tells us something about who Jesus is and what he came to do. He is the son of David, the promised king, who would bring salvation to all nations. Luke 1, 30 through 33, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So we've considered the summary of the genealogy and the structure of the genealogy. Thirdly, let's consider the selectivity of the genealogy the selectivity of the genealogy. When it says there in verse 17 that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, it really just means all the generations in the genealogy, in the list. It doesn't mean all the generations that actually lived during the time between Abraham and David. There were some in between that Matthew just doesn't mention and most of the original readers, being familiar with the genealogies in the Old Testament, would have easily recognized this. They would have recognized the selectivity of the genealogy. For example, when verse three mentions Perez and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Aminadab, that time period between Perez And Aminadab was actually about 450 years. So there were other generations in between that Matthew doesn't choose to mention. And similarly, the next name, Nashon, all the way down to David in verse 6, that period of time is about 400 years. And when it says, so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of can also just mean the ancestor of or the progenitor of. So it doesn't always mean the dad of. It could mean the grandfather of or the great-grandfather of. So there's selectivity in this genealogy and that was normal and recognizable by the original readers. Also, Matthew doesn't always include those we would have expected him to include. For example, in verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of, and who do we expect? We sort of expect Joseph, don't we? Joseph. But instead we have Judah and his brothers. And that's because it was through Judah's line that the Messiah would come. Genesis 49 verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. See, the line runs through Judah, not through the other brothers, It runs through Isaac, not Ishmael. It runs through Jacob, not Esau. It runs through Judah, not Joseph, or the other brothers. We are watching God's sovereign hand as we read this genealogy. We are tracing the thread of his providence down through this genealogy, from Abraham all the way down to the Messiah. Fourth, let's consider the salvation focus of this genealogy, the salvation focus of this genealogy. Two thoughts here. The first is that I think we can take away from this genealogy that Jesus came to save sinners. This genealogy is full of sinners, from Abraham all the way down. Think of the sins of Abraham, or of Isaac, or of Jacob, or of Judah, verse three, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. That whole episode involved prostitution and incest. Or the second half of verse six, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who was, of course, Bathsheba. And the story of David and Bathsheba is a story of adultery and deception and murder. Many of the kings that are mentioned after David were wicked kings, notoriously so, like Rehoboam or Manasseh. And, of course, all of these people including Joseph and Mary, were fallen in Adam, were sinners in need of a savior. And Jesus came to save sinners. Secondly, under this salvation focus, I think we can take away from this genealogy that Jesus came to save all kinds of sinners. Jews and Gentiles. There are several Gentiles in this genealogy, like Rahab, and Ruth, and of course Jesus is said to be the son of Abraham, again, the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. There are men and women. There are five women in this genealogy, which is unusual for a genealogy at this time, which normally traced the line of descent through the heads of households, through the males. So you have Tamar, Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Ruth, you have Bathsheba, and of course you have Mary. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save all kinds of sinners. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, kings and commoners. And we see that salvation focus in this genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel So this is the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of the Messiah, the lineage of our Lord, the line of the king, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Messiah. Three things, briefly by way of further application as we draw to a close this morning. First, I think we should be encouraged by the fact that Jesus came all the way down to us to save us. He didn't hover six feet above the ground. He touched the ground. He took on the nature of the dust of the ground so that he could redeem us. He was born of woman. Mary of whom Jesus was born. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. He came all the way down to us to bring us all the way up to God. Secondly, in light of the fact that he's the king, this key theme in this gospel, we should submit to and serve him as king. By nature, we are rebels against the king. By grace, we become his loving and loyal subjects. And we become so by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in him. So each of us should ask ourselves, is he my king? Is he really my king? Have I turned from my sin and put my trust in him alone for my salvation? And if you have, ask yourself this further question, am I living like he's my king? Or am I living like someone else? Or something else is my king. There's only one king. And it's the son of David, Jesus Christ. We should submit to the king. And serve the king. As his loving and loyal people. Third and finally. We should remember and believe that no one is outside the reach of God's grace. No Jew, no Gentile, no man, no woman, no sinner, however notorious, is outside the reach of God's grace. Remember, Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The genealogy of Jesus is not full of the righteous, but sinners. We are not the righteous in ourselves. We are sinners. And it is sinners he came to save, it is the sick he came to heal. Really, it is the dead he came to raise. And no one is outside the reach of his grace. J.C. Ryle again said, We see here that no one who partakes of human nature can be beyond the reach of Christ's sympathy and compassion. Our sins may have been as black and great as those of any whom St. Matthew names. But they cannot shut us out of heaven if we repent and believe the gospel. If Jesus was not ashamed to be born of a woman whose pedigree contained such names as those we have read today, we need not think that he will be ashamed to call us brethren and to give us eternal life. No one is outside the reach of God's grace. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The king came to save sinners and give them eternal life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for coming all the way down to us to save us from our sin. We look forward to all you will teach us through this book, to all the ways you will sanctify us by the power of your spirit as we go through it together. We pray that you would help us to submit to you and to serve you as our king and to rejoice and rest in the fact that you came to save sinners and to give us eternal life. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's take just a minute now to think and pray about what we've heard and then we will sing together.